Hi Lindsay. Hi Amini. How are you? I'm all right. I'm at home and I've been at home since more than 20 days now. How's it going for you? I definitely can feel that. I'm also at home. Um I do have the privilege though of growing up in a very rural area. So I'm taking care of my parents and my grandparents um on our family ranch which is in Texas. How is Texas doing in terms of the virus, the crisis? Actually, I'm really concerned about the crisis in Texas. Um the state politically has traditionally been very focused on personal independence and definitely in the last two decades has had a very neoliberal turn. So it's very business focused. Um and I'm very concerned that they have not instituted the number of tests needed. So the figures that we're getting back even though they're they're low um with respect to other major metropolitan areas like New York City or like Seattle, um I don't think they're ref- they're accurate. I know that in our county we have we have 35 people that have have gotten the virus um officially, but I know that I have family members that have actually gone in for testing um and been turned away. Have they been told that they likely have the virus but that they're reserving the testing for key people? um so that they weren't able to test them. My sister in fact lives in New York City. She was one of those people um that went in to be tested. She's a chef at a restaurant was laid off by the the epidemic and then came down with symptoms that were very similar but was turned away from testing and told to just stay at home unless she gets so bad that she has to be hospitalized to come back. So my real fear both within Texas but also broader the United States is really the federal lack of action and lack of implementing testing procedures the CDC not providing adequate test kits quickly and then each state has kind of been left to its own governments to implement testing standards and some states are doing really well like Oregon um but other states like Texas are really just not taking it seriously and not being very aggressive with testing so it's very concerning. Have you been teaching online uh, how has that worked out? Yeah, I'm really fortunate in that um right now I'm uh, working on my doctoral degree which requires me to teach certain amount of classes. Um and I'm pretty involved with the faculty at the University of Oregon and then I also uh to kind of pay for my schooling am uh, a practicing architect at a design firm um within in the state of Oregon and um I've been able to do both remotely uh from our rural ranch <laughs> in Texas um so each one kind of part time how has the transition uh to online uh, teaching been uh say in terms of how are you able to do the courses well and how are people responding what are the challenges oh it's difficult <laughs> i'm sure you know cuz you said you're teaching as well um some courses online so you know that um it's very difficult and i think it it very much depends on the content of the course uh we are very lucky in that i think uh the generation of students are very uh, knowledgeable in how to use technology it's very second nature so a lot of the younger students are open and they're being very flexible i've been really impressed with their attitudes and their willingness to kind of adapt to the crisis and be flexible to new mediums. 
And there are some courses like um, maybe history classes or lecture style classes that seem maybe like they could be pretty easily adapted. Um, but especially within the, the subject of architecture, uh, some of our core courses are called studios. That type of course is all about um, refining the students like gut feelings and understanding so that they can direct and move forward the design. It's not about memorization. It's not about uh, mathematical computations or the application of a theorem. Uh, it's really about trying to understand all the different pieces, the geography, the human context, and developing their intuition so that they can progress a design forward. And usually that's done in a very tactile way. Like we build models, we, um, and they could be virtual models, but almost always the practice of education and architecture has started with physical models that you first learn how to do things with your hands and then you can transition it to building virtual models like using CAD software. And I think that's the real challenge is those younger students, their first or second year of architecture school, when they've never really built a physical model and they're all of a sudden having to try to take the intro to studio class uh, online. <laughs> I teach film history. One is the aspect of history. I am able to like translate it online. I'm able to deliver it online. But there's a lot of aspects of uh, say history only delivered as a lecture becomes almost like a, a rundown. It's the thing which happens in class is that we discuss the context. We discuss, we have a lot of discussions and we have, uh, we show films. So teaching film students, we discuss the technicalities of film, the social context of the film, the history of the film, all after watching a film. Uh, but now that aspect is completely removed. So we just uh, hope that the students would watch the film. But also it's never the same because, again, watching together as a group and responding to it as you see it is very different as compared to I watched sometime, maybe I'll remember some parts of it and discuss or not. It's a very different ball game altogether. I, I can completely empathize with that. There is a course that I'm auditing. It's taught by one of our spatial justice fellows, um, Dr. Craig Wilkins. And the class is called Design Activism. And it's, it's largely like history and theory, but it's also about the mechanisms that architects can use and designers and other planners to use their professional skills in service um, of making a more just and, and built environment. And so that part of it, the mechanism part, is the thing that it requires that discussion element you were talking about. It requires collaboration. It requires both between the students, but also in their community. So usually the projects that are, are done in that class are like to go out into the community, to talk to people, um, to try to understand the place-based issues and where there could be injustices and how can we use architecture to remedy it. But now the course... And Dr. Wilkins is doing a great job, but the course is now mostly looking at examples of case studies and lectures, and we're trying really hard to have class discussion. But with the software we're using, you can't, uh, you know, in a normal conversation, there's this kind of like uh, nonverbal feedback. So there's a visual, then there's also the kind of like subtle virtual feedback, you know, like the uh-huh, and I understand. And you can't do that because the way the software works, only one person can speak at a time. And especially the students, I think they get feeling really insecure because they, they don't have those normal cues of encouragement. <laughs> and so they just 
down you know they withdraw <laughs> sometimes it, i just feel as if i'm talking to myself when i look at a class i understand if they've understood if there's any confusion because not everybody is uh, forthcoming enough to come and ask a question because they they might be confused but they might just keep it to themselves but when you're in a class you can gauge a class but all of that is missing uh, another aspect which uh, big a big big question in in a university where i do my phd is it's a public university in a public university there are lots of students who depend on the uh, university infrastructure to access things so for them to uh, and my university also has completely moved online so for that for a lot of students it becomes a herculean task one is they do not have their own laptops two is uh, in a lot of they've gone to very small places around the country their villages where it's very difficult to have uh, continuous uh, say uh, electricity and also continuous broadband access so uh, it becomes a huge uh, task in again it just feels like in a public university in india it feels like almost you're leaving out almost half of the class is left out of this kind of an online program because just for the basic question of access because the economics and uh, in terms of their uh, say social conditions do not allow them to access uh, an online class and also some of my students sharing uh, saying that uh, uh, they're very anxious you know while the classes are going as and as it is usual it's usual business but uh, everybody is anxious and worried as to how this thing is going to turn out and a lot of times online courses we just assume that everybody is available and uh, to listen to a class but it just becomes that uh, we are not uh, conscious of all the anxieties which might be going on in in say the students environment in their heads i absolutely agree there's there's a series of layers and i think that if we look on if we look back at history this is the type of thing that um spatial justice scholars which i refer to that because that's my focus area so it's very close to my heart uh but this is the type of event and crisis at which spatial justice scholars know really well that there's these layers of marginality and i've also been in touch with some of my colleagues at other universities so university of oregon has also switched like your school it's a public school but we've switched to all online but they have tried to address it by putting together an endowment and so students can apply i haven't heard anything about how successful that has been um and that would cover things like if you're in a rural area can the school might pay for you to get internet access but that might be the first layer of of kind of uh inhibiting inhibiting people there's layers below that that there's no way that a university endowment could address for example uh there's a number of students in the program who have young children and usually the university offers some sort of childcare service so that the men and women can uh actually attend their classes but that service isn't provided so you know that's another layer or if you're taking care of a a parent or if your parents or yourself has lost their position and been laid off uh and you're having to work right online then your time is now uh being commandeered by the needs of you know shelter and food and not able to use them towards education so there's these kind of layers that i think the endowment doesn't address uh it has very good intentions but there's it's it's not possible so there's other schools like um university of the philippines and kazan city also a public school 
where by the nature and design of being an island nation, uh, they've said, we're not going to hold, we're going to hold some classes online, but they're optional. And we're just going to give everybody a passing grade for the whole semester. And everybody will just start in the fall because there's no way we could address all these layers of, of marginality. And then there's other schools like um, the Universidad de Concepcion in Chile, uh, where their College of Design has said that they're going to try to um, run classes in person, um, but they'll have the students vote. And there is a history of uh, student, uh, I want to say like activism um, of almost like rebellion of the students feeling like they have a powerful voice. So there's a very conscious attention to making sure that the students are comfortable and happy with the direction that's, that the school is being taken. So I know there's a number worldwide of universities addressing this issue in different ways, via online, via just canceling classes, via actually polling students and trying to determine what's what's in their best interest collectively. I was also curious as to how the uh, architecture practice, because you also practice in a design form, how has that moved online and how have you been working with that? That's a great point. That's a great point. Yeah, so much of architecture, even the education of architecture is rooted in uh, doing. So most nations have... Um, some sort of licensing requirements to, to be an architect that's um, overseen by the government. And typically that includes an educational component, but also a practice component. In the United States, it's like almost 4,000 hours that after you have your degrees, you have to be working in a firm and you have to be getting some sort of payment and you have to work under a licensed architect. And, you, and it even prescribes like the different tasks that you have to do because it's so important, the actual doing. It's a very journeyman type training. Um, and so in my work as a firm, uh, it's been really difficult. The firm that the, the type of work that we do, we have kind of two types of work. One is private and one is public. And I would say that all of our private clients have suspended their contracts. So now we're, we're solely relying on uh, government work, on public contracts, because the money for those are, are usually held aside. And even mm -hmm. in a crisis like this, the money can't be taken away. Like it's already been contractually obligated for some multiple years. Um, but my concern with that is that we're having to, because that's now has such more importance, because we've lost a lot of the private work. Um, we really need to keep the public work going in order to pay our staff and, um, you know, con continue their livelihood. So what we're having to do is figure out how do we make uh, the building process completely virtual. And I think that there is really there's really valid concerns that that you can't. <laughs> so you end up just like limping along and making do, but I'm concerned that the the ultimate products are going to be, and, and I, I don't want to say that, it, I really feel like theoretically it's not possible. Like I don't care how good of a designer you are <laughs> or how good of a, a firm that you are, because I don't think it's anything against our firm. So an example of that would be um, architecture, in my opinion, to be to be done well and to have a long life and to be done sustainably needs to be both place-based 
um, as well as people-based. So it needs to be rooted in the geography, in the climate, in the direction of the sun angles and the wind and understanding of, of water conditions, but also in the people and the culture and the history of that, of that space and what's appropriate for maintenance and longevity of the building. And so we typically do that through a series of site surveys, of walks. We do a lot of interviews and focus group discussions with the people and around that place. And we just had a call yesterday um, where we're going to try to do that through like Zoom platform or through a go-to meeting platform where somebody in the community is going to hold the microphone and go around and talk to other people in the community. And I think that there's, in a, like I said, it's we're, in a way we're really pushed to try to salvage the project and, and the government is really in a position where they can either cut the project and never do it again or try to make it work. So we're all trying to make it work, but will it really, will the product actually um, be what it could be or be what it needs to be? I'm not sure. And then kind of another, I don't know if you have um, run into this, but, we got a notice last week, at least for the U.S. government, that uh, the Zoom, um, as that particular company, has been completely suspended for use on any government work because of the security concerns with Zoom bombing. So we had a huge uproar within the company for like two days where we had to wipe all the computers. We had to clean everything on the cloud and make sure that there weren't there like change all the passwords for all of our accounts because we have mm -hmm. these documents of government buildings, et cetera. And I think a lot of this yeah. online connectivity has opened up uh, a lot of increased risk. And I think that there's going to be a longer term concern about data security and privacy. Um, you know, it's one of those things, right? Once it's out there, it's out there. <laughs> so nobody's focusing on it now, but I think longer term that, there are there are real concerns potentially with with this type of virtual connectivity. Another uh, is this question of you know uh, you are going to be uh, graduating out of your graduate school soon, and I also will be graduating soon. Given the current situation, uh, the job market seems terrible in terms of for the academics and generally as well. Okay, now what does one do? Uh, one just have to wait this period out, or should one take up anything which comes your way, even though? It might not be of your interest. or So these are all some of the concerns with, for a lot of people who are passing out. Absolutely, yes. I have been a little frustrated the last few weeks uh, because of this issue in that uh, I had planned to finish in December and then the goal was to be applying for jobs for um, tenure-track professorship positions or for a research lab. And I know at least... I've been on a hiring committee at University of Oregon, um, at least as like a member at large, and we have completely suspended all hires across the entire university. And that's a public school. So yeah. I, I do think that it's going to be several years before the universities are able to hire again. And I do think that research, while theoretically, I don't think it's optional. I think it's necessary for us to be able to be responsive and uh, give appropriate solutions. Uh, it typically is reliant on, you know, peripheral funds. It's not considered a direct human need. And so when universities are looking to cut budgets, they cut research budgets. And so do private institutions, especially when it's research about 
spatial justice. <laughs> it's not considered um, one of the core essentials. Um, so I do think that that's a really big concern. And it's a little funny for me because oh, I was in a very similar situation. Of course, this is an unprecedented epidemic, but pandemic. But when I was uh, coming out of my undergrad, uh, it was 2007. And uh, the United States had just started what was going to be like a four to five year huge housing bubble crisis. And architects are the number one profession, architects and building contractors in the housing bubble crisis. So I kind of feel in familiar territory. <laughs> I've I've had to scourge for employment uh, during that time and was successful, but like you were, you suggested, I was successful because I didn't hold my focus on getting a traditional position as an architectural intern. I ended up taking a consulting job and going into business management for a while because that was what I needed to pay off my school loans. And I I'll probably be in a similar position. Uh, I probably will have to wait to return to academia for five or six years and hopefully rely on my skills as an architect um, or something else <laughs> in order to make that period. You're absolutely right in that sense that first of all, the uh, funding for humanities or any kind of social research has been declining in the past few years and now I think it's going to fall drastically because I mean the governments at least I can I can see that the governments are themselves going bankrupt like literally uh, research is going to be hit quite hugely and like you suggested uh, even I mean one might have to take up whatever one finds and then uh, get back I mean take a few years and when things might get normal or at least the new normal and try to get back to wherever one wants to be, I guess. Yeah. And I, I do hope though, I mean, while we've discussed a lot of concerns, both with teaching and also the practice, I would like to really acknowledge the environmental relief that's been happening um, as somebody that's really focused on sustainable design as well. I think that there are places in the world that, we're mostly being polluted through a lot of transportation and travel and emissions. And so the fact that we've had such a relief from that uh, has been really helpful. And we're seeing some of the cleanest air and water and um, land that we've, we've seen in quite a while. So I do hope that maybe that recognition could possibly be inspirational or lead towards a new type of focus within architecture and design. And maybe that you know, there could be some sort of benefit in which I really would advocate that you can't replace uh, architecture and it sounds like film studies with all virtual, but maybe there's some hybrid solution or maybe there's some lessons that we could take into the future so that in five years, we're not trying to return to where we were, but we're trying to right, create that new future. <laughs> Yeah. Anything else you want to add? Because I'm pretty much done with whatever I wanted to discuss. I I think it's been a really good discussion. I will maybe add one thing. I know that there is some work being done as far as architecture. I think we talked about education and practice, but within the research portion of architecture, there is some really interesting work and studies going on about um, different models of designing lockdowns. And I think there could be some sort of really interesting 
shift in the design profession on how we understand the role of public space, given that some of our um, epidemiologists and public health specialists are saying that this type of viral pandemic is something that might be more common in the future. Like maybe this isn't one time, maybe this will circulate again, but also that there could be other pandemics. And so it's caused a number of my colleagues to, I, I think everybody, especially all of our listeners can uh, say that we all miss having some sort of public engagement, that humans are social creatures. And so some of my colleagues like uh, Dr. Gustavo de Siqueira at the German Technical University in Oman is looking at how do you how do you do some spatial temporal modeling and research to design spaces that could be public while still keeping people safe? Like, how could we, you know, visualize or reimagine different realities that would allow the built environment to support connection and collaboration that we really, obviously, really want and need, um, but while also maintaining some sort of social distancing? Thanks for having me. This has been a real treat. Thank you so much. This was wonderful.